For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 10, verse 1 through 48, which um, I entitled, The Spirit Spills Out to the Gentiles. And God is ushering in a new phase of his plan in the book of Acts that we've been sort of unfolding. Why don't we begin by reading? Read in verse 1 and 2. In Caesarea there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. So we're given a, a few details about this guy, Cornelius. First of all, that he's a part of the Italian regiment. In the Roman army, a regiment consisted of six centuries, and a century consisted of a hundred men in the army. And so this guy, Cornelius, was something akin to a captain in the U.S. Army. So he was prominent, you know, military guy. And also we're told that he was devout and God-fearing. Now, this guy, Cornelius, he wasn't Jewish by descent. He was a Gentile or a non-Jew. And a lot of times these non-Jewish people will, would encounter Jewish believers and they would notice something different about them and decide that they wanted to actually convert to Judaism where they took on the burden of the law in the Old Testament, but they didn't want to go that extra step of getting circumcised. And so they decided that they were going to stay as God-fearing people, people who were devout in their following of Judaism, but didn't want to go all the way. They wanted to sort of separate themselves culturally. So Cornelius was this guy who had a high social standing. He was a godly man. And we're also told that the Jews in Caesarea all respected him. So this guy had a reputation uh, among the people in Caesarea of being a godly person. And even though Cornelius was a you know, well-respected and godly person, the Jewish people there still viewed him as an outsider despite his faith and social standing. And this is because in the ancient world, especially during this time, the extra-biblical teaching of the Jews, the rabbinic teaching, actually... Uh, suggested that Jewish people should not be intermingling or intermixing with Gentiles, non-Jews. And that it was actually, it would make you ritually unclean to associate with a Gentile person. And so even though they, they respected Cornelius, they really didn't want to have too much to do with him because of who he was. Well, one afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said, and Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel, and the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. So Luke introduces Peter again to this narrative. If you can recall, Peter played a very special role in the early church where he 
sort of unlocked the kingdom of God to the first believers in Christ there in Acts chapter 2. And then we also see that Peter was involved in unlocking the kingdom to the Samaritans who were hated by the Jews. And then again, he's going to play a prominent role here in the conversion of the first Gentile. But it's interesting because God has to work on Peter a little bit before he can get to that point, before he can use him. And the reason for this is that Peter struggled with racial intolerance toward the Gentiles. And so this story really is as much about God converting Peter's heart as it is converting Cornelius. Well, we're told that he sent some men to Joppa where Peter was staying. Now, if you sort of rewind back to the Old Testament, you'll recall that another famous man of God who God called to speak for him came from this city, Joppa, a guy named Jonah. And just like Jonah, we see that Peter feels a reluctance to carry out God's call. If you can recall that story, you know, Jonah, God calls Jonah, he says, I want you to go and preach to these guys, the Ninevites, who were Assyrians, they were non-Jews, and Jonah decides that he's going to go in the opposite direction of Nineveh, and God basically drags him to Nineveh to, to preach to these guys and to essentially turn them back to God. And we see, even in the Old Testament, that God wanted to see non-Jewish people come to him, that he loved them just as much as he loved the Jews. Well, as soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up to the flat roof to pray. You know, like our roofs today, which have a pitch to them, they had flat roofs, and a lot of times these were covered they would go up there because there was a slight breeze and, and usually they would go up there in the middle of the day where they could sort of cool down and relax. It was about noon and we're told that Peter was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open up and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles and birds. And then a voice came and said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat him. Okay? So, in verse 12, it says that there were all sorts of animals, but if you look at another translation, like the New International Version or maybe the New American Standard Version, it says four-footed animals, which that would have been a term associated with insects. Now, if you're not real familiar with the Old Testament, many of these animals that Luke describes would have been regarded as unclean animals. These are things that Jewish, devout Jewish people were not allowed to eat based on the Old Testament. So certainly, Peter was just shocked by this as he saw this sheet come down with all these unclean animals. Now, it raises the question, what's the point of the vision? Some New Testament commentators who take a more naturalistic approach to the Bible would say that, you know, Peter fell into this hunger-induced trance, and since he was by the seashore, he saw a ship sailing by. And so the sheet was actually a, a sailboat, and that this ship contained a lot of animals. 
So that's, that's the explanation for this trance. But I think that the content of this vision has less to do with the sheet and more to do with what is actually contained in that sheet, these animals, as we'll see. Peter declared, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. So this voice calls out from heaven and essentially rebukes Peter for refusing to listen. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven and Peter was very perplexed. So apparently this went on a few times. The voice would ring down from heaven. You need to kill and eat. Peter's like, hell no, I'm not going to eat that. This went on a couple times until suddenly the sheet was pulled up. Peter was very perplexed. He was sitting there sort of churning and, and wondering what could this vision mean. And just then, men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. While standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Go downstairs, go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I've sent them. You know, he says, you need to go with them without hesitation. Again, in other translations, it renders this word without distinction, which I think captures the meaning that Luke wants to convey here that you shouldn't make distinctions about these guys who presumably were Gentile people. They were, they were non-Jewish people. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? So, you know, just to pause for a second. It's interesting when you look at this story already, you can tell that God is orchestrating all of this, that he's orchestrating this divine appointment, so to speak, God gives this guy Cornelius a vision about a guy named Simon Peter and tells him to go and send some of his men there. Meanwhile, Simon Peter is up on his roof. He gets a vision. And just as he's sort of puzzling over this vision, these guys show up at his doorstep. And it's a direct response to him wondering, what, what's, you know, what is God trying to communicate here? And I think God does this even today where he will set up what you might call divine appointments, where he orchestrate events and circumstances in order to reach people with his love. I was just thinking about a more, a more recent story that I can think of. You know, I lead in this uh, high school Bible study. And um, this year, this incoming freshman dude, skinny as a rail, he must weigh like 70 pounds, just kind of, you know, goofy, you know, eighth graders are. You know, he started hanging out at our group, and after, I think, maybe two or three times attending our Bible study, he invited Christ into his life. And it was amazing to see just his spiritual life flourish within just a couple months of receiving Christ. And I felt like God was giving me sort of a personal burden for this guy. You know, he comes from a pretty rough background. His mom has mental health issues. Apparently, she has, you know, PTSD because her ex-husband was uh, physically abusive. Apparently, his dad is also uh, struggling with mental health issues. Both of them live on disability because of their mental health problems. 
and um, he struggles with anxiety. And so, you know, I started to really grow attached to this guy. And just as the school year was going to begin, his freshman year, his parents upped and moved 15 minutes away further north in a completely different school district. Even though he had built a lot of really close relationships with the guys who he would have been attending school with. And so I remember talking to a guy in our group and and just feeling really pessimistic about this guy ever showing back up. You know, he's a newer Christian and it was going to be very hard for him to attend our group. And so when the school year began, he shows up with a guy that he met within his apartment complex uh, that he just moved into. And uh, that guy actually invited Christ into his life, and he's inviting tons of people from his school where we don't have a huge presence. And so, you know, looking back on it at the time, I was so confused, like, what is God doing here? Why would he allow that to happen? And yet it's very clear now, looking back in retrospect, that he was arranging all of these events, even though at the time I didn't understand it. Well, These guys said, we were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. And so Peter actually invited these men to stay for the night. Peter at this point is starting to get it. He invited these guys into his house. Remember, it was unlawful according to Jewish tradition. It's not in the Bible. It's Jewish tradition at this time to invite a Gentile person into your house. That would be inviting something unclean to come into your house and defile you ceremonially. Well, the next day he went with them accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. And they arrive in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So Cornelius, in anticipation, decides to assemble his close friends and family as they awaited Peter. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. And Peter pulled him up and said, stand up, I'm a human being just like you. And so Peter avoided the, both the extreme and opposite um, things that you see where, you know, on the one hand, he could have treated this guy Cornelius, a Gentile, as a dog. Um, And at the same time, he refused to take Uh, Cornelius's worship as though he was God. So they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. Peter told him, he says, you know, it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or even to associate with you. Nice opening, Peter. That's like, uh, you know, coming into a room full of eager, uh, spiritually seeking people who are all waiting to hear what you're going to say and be like, you know, I really hate you guys, and um, culturally, we're just totally different. I'm not even really supposed to be here because you guys are unclean. But he says, God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without any objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. And so, you know, Cornelius explains his vision and concludes, so I sent for you at once, and it was good for you to come. Now we're all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. For those of us who are Christian workers, you know, an opportunity like this, you just be licking your lips, 
waiting for something like this to happen. You know, dozens of people who are just eager to hear about God and you have an opportunity to speak for him. It's amazing. Well, he says, uh, God shows no favoritism and in every nation he accepts those who fear him and do what's right. This is the message of the good news for the people of Israel that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. And so he highlights, first of all, the problem, or at least he alludes to it, that we are in a state where there is friction, there's tension between us and God because of the things that we've done which are wrong. And we're enemies of God because we've, we've violated his commandments, we fail to acknowledge him, and we do things even though we know it's wrong. And that personally offends him. And yet, Peter points out that the good news of Jesus Christ is that Jesus actually offers peace with God through what he's done on the cross. He says, you know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you also know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He's referring to when Jesus underwent baptism by John. And unlike the kings of old in the, in the Old Testament, Jesus wasn't anointed with oil. He was actually anointed with power in the Holy Spirit as he emerged from the water. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was actually with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem, and they put him to death by hanging him on a cross, or some translations say on a tree. And I think that Peter uses that term very specifically on a tree because if you go all the way back to the Old Testament again, the law states that any person who is executed by being hung on a tree, that that person was accursed by God. And so certainly the people who are watching Jesus being crucified were probably putting the pieces together and thinking, this guy He's cursed by God. And they were probably right. Except for one small detail, he wasn't cursed because of the things that he had done wrong. He was being accursed because of the things that we have done wrong. Jesus became the perfect substitute for us because of the things that we've done wrong. Peter fleshes this out a little bit more in 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You know, for those of you who are maybe uh, unfamiliar with the Bible and what the, what the Bible has to say, contrary to maybe what you've heard, the Bible isn't about you cleaning up your act and being a good person. It's not about you changing your life so that God will, you know, hopefully accept you into heaven. The message of the Bible is very clear. It's about us receiving the forgiveness or the grace that he offers through Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can gain entrance into heaven. Not through our good works, not by abstaining from bad things, but by receiving what he's done. But we're told God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. 
And we were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had also been poured out on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. So the, the believers who were there with Peter were astonished that God would actually give the Holy Spirit to these people. It just shows how entrenched this mentality of racial prejudice was in their mind. Then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did? And so he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several more days. So there you have the story of the first Gentile convert. Okay, let's uh, think about some points that we can take away from this. You know, as we, as we sort of look at this story and try to distill it down into a few points that we can walk away with, I think, first of all, God want, was establishing a new order which included the Gentiles. That's what this signaled. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit meant that God was moving to the next phase of his plan, which included expanding out to the Gentiles. You know, if you, if you recall Acts chapter 1, when we studied it a few months ago, Jesus said that when the Spirit came, the news about him would spread not only through Judea, which was the area surrounding Jerusalem, but it would go out to Samaria and out to the ends of the earth. You know, God intends for the message of Christ, the love of God, to go out to the entire world. It's not exclusive to one type of people. You know, he, uh, in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, says, you are all aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or even to visit with him. So this is Peter recounting this back to the other believers after he came back, he says, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So that was really the content of this vision that God was pointing out by analogy. You know, this, this food that you look at as unclean or impure, which, you know, by the way, I told you that no foods are unclean because of, my, because of the new covenant or the new age that I'm bringing you into that your refusal to kill and eat also represents your refusal to break out of your comfort and to love people who are different from you because you, your people have a tradition which teaches that those people are unclean. The traditions of men held Peter captive. You know how I pointed out that this was all tradition there's nothing in the Old Testament that teaches that, you know, foreigners or people who are non-Jews are ritually unclean. That's just patently false. They came up with that. We also know that Peter, uh, which I mentioned, you know, he was standing there when Jesus declared all foods clean. In Mark 7, verse 18 and 19, 
Uh, Jesus says, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach. They had this sort of superstitious view that if you came into contact with uh, something that was unclean, like walked into the air of, you know, a Gentile, or uh, if you didn't wash your hands before eating, you know, you might have come into contact with something unclean, and so therefore, as you ate your food, it was sort of like, you know, digesting the cooties or something like that, the sin cooties that you got from the Gentiles. And Jesus points out, he says, it doesn't go into your heart, but it goes into your stomach and then out of your body. You crap it out. And he says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So this signaled the new phase that, you know, Jesus was saying that uh, in my new way of doing things, this new time, this new era, I'm going I'm to take away a lot of the restrictions that I had in the Old Testament. And Peter was standing there when this was happening, and yet, for some reason, he started to revert back to this old way of thinking. Because when he saw that sheet coming down with all of those unclean animals, even though God was telling him, kill and eat, Peter's like, no way, I'm not going to do that. And the same goes, too, for his relationship with these Gentile people. Peter knew from the Old Testament that God planned all along to bring this message of love through his Messiah out to the rest of the world, that he wasn't going to localize it to the nation of Israel. You know, when you look at the Old Testament, God did isolate the Israelites from the surrounding people, not because they were racially different, but because they had these religious practices that, they, that God knew they were susceptible to falling into. And so he commanded them, I, you know, I, I think you're too weak, so you need to make sure to stay away from these people and, and not intermarry with them. But as soon as they accomplished their mission of setting down the writings of the Old Testament and also bringing forward the Messiah, God was going to move to his next phase, which was less about trying to insulate themselves and more about going out. You know, we see that in um, the book of Jonah, like I mentioned. We see also in Leviticus 19, verse 33 and 34, God explicitly states that the Israelites aren't to, uh, you know, show prejudice toward foreigners. He says, don't take advantage of the foreigners who live among you in the land. Treat them as you would native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you also were foreigners living in the land of Egypt. And so somehow they had strayed away from this and ended up feeling this prejudice and even hatred toward people who were non-Jewish. Also, uh, God promised that his anointed one, the Messiah, would actually uh, bring forth a message that would go out to the Gentiles. In Isaiah 49, verse 5 and 6, and now the Lord speaks, the one who has formed me in my mother's womb to be his servant, the suffering servant, who commissioned me to bring Israel back to him. He says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles and bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So it's right there in the Old Testament that God was going to go out to the Gentiles. That was his plan all along. 
And yet, Peter was a product of his culture. He couldn't shake the Jewish tradition that shaped his thinking. And that became a real barrier for God using him. You know, Jesus stated that these traditions of men that start to accumulate when people start adding to religion, that it can actually become a barrier to faithfulness to God. Jesus says this in Mark 7, verse 8 and 9. He says, you have let go the commandments of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. You have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to observe your own traditions. Think about what he's saying there. The traditions of men and the word of God, those things are incompatible. Because what you're going to end up doing when you observe the traditions of people is that it becomes a clever way of actually sidestepping the commandments of God. Because whenever we come up with something, it's always centered on our selfishness and our comfort. And it, it puts the control squarely in our hands instead of in God's. And that's the reason why these two things typically collide. Well, we've also seen this sort of thing happen throughout Christian history where human tradition starts to creep in and it becomes a barrier to people coming to Christ. You know, you see this with uh, alcohol where many churches today say that, you know, Christians should not be drinking alcohol. And, um, you know, they try to explain away a lot of these passages where it seems like Jesus and biblical figures are drinking alcohol by steer-wrestling the passage to make it sound like they were drinking grape juice. Yet, you know, when you read passages like Psalm 104, verse 15, which says, wine makes the heart of man merry or glad, how does that make any sense when you insert grape juice in there? Boy, a fine grape juice just really makes the heart of man glad. This is uh, some, some great Concord grape juice. But, you know, the thinking was, okay, people are drinking, and then they're drinking in excess. And so maybe the best thing for us to do is to tell people that they should abstain from drinking altogether to sort of prevent them from experiencing this temptation. That sounds like a good idea, but it's actually going beyond what God has said. And here we are in a culture where most people enjoy having a drink. And you know, meanwhile, the Christians have to, you know, sit there and drink their, you know, diet soda and stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, they feel constrained by that. Not because God said that, but because of human tradition. What about this? Christians should only listen to Christian music. It's amazing how many varieties of Christian music you can run across. And, and you know, really, uh, most Christian music tries to mimic a lot of the secular music you see. So that's why you have various forms of Christian music like Christian punk rock, Christian rap, uh, Christian death metal, which I don't quite understand. <laughs> Some of it's good, though. I've actually listened to it. But, you know, why, why actually come up with a replacement uh, for this music? And it's because, you know, well, you know, the, the lyrics are racy. There's a lot of talk about, 
you know, drugs and alcohol and sex, and you know, Christians struggle with those sorts of things, and so therefore, when they're listening to Christian or uh, secular music, they might fall into temptation. And so, you know, we need to come up with our own brand. But think about that. I mean, our culture is really obsessed with music. You know, imagine if you were sitting in a conversation and people were talking about their favorite band or their favorite artist and stuff. And you're like, oh, what about you? And you're like, oh, you know, Amy Grant's really great. And, uh, you know, I got this really cool band called Jars of Clay and stuff. And they're just really cool. You're like, what? Who is that? You know, it's, it's just another area where people feel disconnected from us for things that don't really matter. Where does the Bible say that we, should, we shouldn't listen to secular music? I, I don't read that anywhere. Do you? It sounds like another tradition that's laid out by people. What about this? Christians shouldn't watch secular TV shows and movies. I know a guy who I used to live with. He grew up in a very restrictive Christian home. His parents never owned a TV while he was growing up. And uh, needless to say, he was a really weird dude. Um, but, you know, the idea was we need to try to insulate our kids because we want to make sure that, you know, the, the TV programs and, and the things that they're seeing, that it doesn't influence them in a negative way. And yet, it had the opposite effect. Him and many of his siblings felt like, you know, we have been deprived of, like, culture all of our lives, and as soon as they came into contact with it, they immersed themselves in it. You know, think about some of your friends who grew up in very restrictive Christian homes like this. You know, as soon as they had the freedom to get out of their house and, and to dive into the world, they went for it, right? Uh, the same thing goes for uh, movies, where a lot of times Christians come up with, uh, you know, uh, similar movies and what you see in uh, secular culture, but they try to splice in, you know, a Christian message into it. So, you know, you know, imagine you go to the Christian bookstore and you're looking for some, you know, wholesome Christian movies. Something of the, you know, Kirk Cameron variety, but not left behind because, you know, you've watched that series at least three times. And so, you, you know, you're walking through and you strike out and uh, you're like, oh, you know what? I, I really want to listen. I want to watch some, some Christian horror, you know? And so you wander into that section and then you come across this gem right here, Escape from Hell. <laughs> I, I like the, the subtitle there. You will believe. <laughs> Uh, again, it's just another area where we feel disconnected from our culture. And really, when you look at Christian culture, you'll see that in practically every area, Christians have come up with their own version of things that, that you see in the world. You know, if you decided that you wanted to wear a Christian clothing and you were also an MMA, you could pick up a Jesus Didn't Tap shirt. I don't know if you can make that out, but that's uh, Jesus uh, putting the devil in a jujitsu move or something like that. <laughs> so if you really wanted to and you wanted to insulate yourself from the world, 
and immerse yourself into Christian culture. You could do that. There's an alternative out there. You know, the other thing that you see is that Christians should take a specific political stand. Um, I remember talking to a guy who went to a large area local church for many years, and eventually he decided he didn't want to go there anymore. I remember talking to him after he left, and I said, you know, what, why did you decide to leave? And he said, well, there are a few reasons, but one of the things that really bothered me was that it seemed like he cared, they cared more about whether I was a Republican more than whether I was actually a follower of Christ. And I think that people in our culture today look at, you know, Christianity, they think, you have to be a, a right-winger. You need to be a part of the religious right if you want to be a Christian. And that alienates people. Think about the, the campus that we're on, Ohio State campus. You know, the, the majority of people there are liberals. And if they perceive that, you know, the only way that I can become a Christian is to dump my political views and to embrace this other set of political views, then forget it. I'm not into that. Well, it turns out Christianity is compatible with being liberal as much as it is being conservative. You know, you might be asking yourself, why are you uh, being so harsh on Christian culture? You know, what's the harm in all of these things? Uh, you know, after all, these are people who care about God. They're well-intentioned. You know, what's, what's the harm in, in having your own culture? Well, I think, first of all, it may lead us to say exactly what Peter said, surely not, Lord. You know, when we have created our own culture where we can comfortably insulate ourselves from the encroaching evil of the world, it gets a lot harder to carry out what God calls us to do, which is to bring the love of God out to the world. You know, not to call people to come to us, but to go out with his love, to meet people who are different than us. You know, when you look at Jesus' life, who did he spend most of his time with? He spent most of his time with the rejects, the prostitutes, the tax collectors who are considered thieves. He spent time with those people. Not the religious people, not the ones who thought that they were, you know, high and mighty. He reached out to the people who felt lost. And in the same way, God calls on us to do that. But if we have set up all of these different traditions that prevent us from, from carrying out God's call, we're going to be ineffective. We're going to be telling God, no, just like Peter. Secondly, it creates unnecessary barriers between non-Christian people and us. You know, when a non-Christian person looks at us and the way that we live, if they're interested in spiritual things, they're evaluating, what would I need to give up if I actually decided I wanted to follow God and become a Christian? You know, does that mean that I have to dispose of all the things that I actually like in order to follow God? Well, then forget it. You know, imagine if, um, you know, your friend calls you up and your non-Christian friend says, um, hey man, you know, you want to come out and um, come over to my house and play some cards? Well, <laughs> 
uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian and I just, uh, playing cards, it's just not really something that's compatible with my beliefs. Oh, well, you know, maybe uh, you can just come over, like, and watch the game with us and you can have a beer. Well, <laughs> uh, about the beer thing, I just, you know, as a, as a good Christian, I don't, I don't drink beer. It's, it's not really allowed for Christians to um, partake in alcohol. Okay, uh, well, you know, maybe uh, this Friday you, you can come and, and hang out with us and we can go watch a movie. Well, uh, I only watch uh, Christian movies because there's uh, too much, you know, sex and violence and uh, racy stuff in there. I'm sure at that point, you know, your friend's going to be like, well, maybe I should just never call you again. <laughs> what about that? You know, meanwhile, you wonder if God is standing in the background, waving his arms, saying, I never said any of those things. You know, who are we to put unnecessary barriers for people coming to Christ that, that God never intended? He never said anything about these areas, and yet we feel the liberty to stack those on and for people to look at those as hurdles that they need to jump over in order to come to Christ. When he's the one who sets the minimum clearance for salvation and says, it's all about faith, that's it. We're not allowed to go beyond what he says. We're not allowed to put barriers in the way of people who want to know him. God gets angry at that sort of thing, I think. Well, let's draw a few points of application. I think first of all, when you look at this uh, story, it ends well, but it's got a sorry postscript. If you look at Acts chapter 11, verse 19, later on, we're told, meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered throughout the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria, and they preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. Turns out God had to find somebody else to carry out this mission to the Gentiles because they were so steeped in the traditions of men. Well, I think the second point of application for us would be that prejudices, traditions, and going beyond what's written serve as unnecessary barriers to God's love. We need to be mindful of that. The things that we just naturally do in our fellowship those can harden into human traditions such that we are standing around wondering, so why are we doing this? I don't know. We should just keep doing it. And meanwhile, the non-Christian world looks on and sees the creepy things that we do, and they're like, so wait, I have to do that? Meanwhile, we feel like it's just normal because that's what we do. We need to go through and constantly evaluate, are we going beyond what's written? And are, are we adapting to our culture? Not compromising the message of Christ, but are we adapting in a way that makes it easier for people to come to Christ? It's hard enough for people to humble themselves before God. We're in really no place to tell them you need to do these things that we have just decided on our own. And third, like Cornelius, God may have orchestrated you coming here tonight. You know, um, you might look at you being here or maybe the friend who brought you here as, you know, some sort of fortuitous event. Turns out it's not luck. 
God loves you and wants to pursue you. He's been pursuing you. And it could be that the reason you're here tonight is because God is calling you just like that guy Cornelius. Maybe it's not in the same spectacular fashion, like through a vision. But if you think on it, um, you know, for some of us, it's undeniable that God's the one who orchestrated this. And maybe he wants to meet you here tonight. You know, in a few minutes, we're going to pray together. And uh, it's an opportunity for you to turn to God. You don't have to do it out loud. You don't have to stand up. There's no altar here. But in your heart, you can turn to God and ask for the forgiveness that he freely wants to give you. He's not telling you need to do anything to clean up your life or any of those things. But it does require you admitting that you need his forgiveness. And if you ask for it, he'll give it to you. Okay, there you have Acts 10. Yeah, we pray too that you would reveal to us ways uh, where we are um, coming up with our own human tradition that could potentially become a barrier one day to uh, people coming to know you. Pray that we can... um, Learn to just see things through what, you know, a non-Christian would see if they were looking at us. And um, to, you know, get rid of the things that um, could be obstacles because we don't want to, uh, you know, stand in the way of what you're doing in people's lives. And um, more importantly, Lord, we uh, do pray for those of us who uh, maybe you have brought here specifically to hear this message of grace. Um, I know in my own life, I look back and see uh, ways that you created all of these different divine appointments for me, and um, it shows that you love me and that you want to pursue me, even though I was far away from you. And I pray for anyone who just uh, senses that that's what's happening right now, that they would turn to you in faith and uh, receive the forgiveness that you freely offer through Jesus Christ. Thanks for anyone who did that in your name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.